0: Welcome to the Key Ride Home for Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history and science of luge, bobsledding, and skeleton. Plus, a new study has found that the U.S.'s corn-based ethanol is worse for the climate than regular gasoline. And a bit of a pop culture roundup, including some new releases to look forward to this record store day. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So many Olympic sports, especially in the Winter Games, kind of defy the physics we thought we knew about the world. How can a human possibly be going so fast or so high? And also, who was it that first had the thought they should even do such a thing? To attempt to answer those questions, I thought I'd dive into the physics and the history of some of the most mind-blowing Olympic sports—luge, bobsled, and skeleton— And just to make sure we're all on the same page here, a brief differentiation of the three. So bobsled is the one from Cool Runnings, where athletes are in an almost car-looking vehicle that they have to push before they all jump in it and ride down the course. In Luge, the individual athlete starts the race already on the sled, which is flat and not at all car-like like in Bobsled. It just looks like a more professional version of the sled you may have grown up riding down hills on on snow days. They lie on the sled on their back, feet first down the course. And while bobsled comes in two- and four-person events in the Olympics, luge is usually solo, although there is a two-person version called double luge in which the second person literally just lays on top of the first, and it is the absolute best thing to watch. Now, skeleton, meanwhile, looks a lot like luge in that it is one person on a similarly shaped sled, but they are on their belly and going down head first. They also have to run about 40 meters and jump into position on the sled at the start of the race, instead of starting already on the sled like in luge. In both luge and skeleton, athletes can reach speeds of up to 90 miles an hour. But how did we get to this point? As Atlas Obscura points out, the sled as a functional item goes back centuries. In places with snow and hills, they were highly effective vehicles for transporting very large, heavy objects. It wouldn't be until later, though, that the sled came to be used as a pastime. A lot of sports that are now included in the Winter Olympics had their start in the Scandinavian military, taking activities that were a part of military strategy, like skiing and shooting, and turning them into competitions with each other when they weren't fighting. Luge and the other sled sports are a bit different. It is possible that sleds were used in a military context back in 103 BCE by a northern Germanic tribe who slid down a mountain on the backs of their shields to attack the Romans, and failed at it. That could just be a made-up legend, but it does emphasize an important point. Up until about the late 1800s, sleds were thought of as unsteerable. You could go down a hill really fast on one, but you didn't have too much control over where you would end up down that hill. That changed towards the end of the 19th century at two resort towns in the Swiss Alps, Davos and St. Moritz. Started as popular summer resorts for aristocrats from around Europe and North America, but soon decided to open in the winter as well. And the rich folks spending time there needed some way to keep themselves occupied. So they started sledding, or as they called it there at the time, tobogganing, possibly due to influence from the Algonquin language and visiting Canadians. Quoting Atlas Obscura, This early period of winter sports creation in the Alps drew Englishmen and Americans. In broad strokes, the Americans brought the equipment and the Englishmen brought the ceremony. It was these tourists who, when they weren't skiing, took sleds down the picturesque mountains, often right down the main roads in town, which seems to have been very annoying for the townspeople and great fun for the tourists. Of all the varied kinds of sport which men in their incessant search after amusement have discovered, those which have taken the most lasting hold and attained the greatest perfection appear to be the various forms of rapid motion upon earth or water in which one man's strength or skill can be tested against another's, writes Theodore Andrea Cook in Notes on Tobogganing at St. Moritz. St. Moritz is probably the birthplace of the lineage that gave us luge. According to some accounts, it was in Davos that toboggan races had been held to the great entertainment of tourists in the early 1880s. Hotel operators in nearby St. Moritz took notice, and according to the St. Moritz Tobogganing Club, in the winter of 1884 through 1885, five guests at the Colm Hotel formed an outdoor amusements committee and built a sled racing course to compete with Davos. This course was known as the Cresta Run." Originally made of snow, as sleds developed to have metal runners and steering mechanisms, the Cresta Run was noted to get run down pretty quickly from these heavier sleds, and when it got run down, it hardened, pretty much into ice. But that's when people noticed that on ice, they could go even faster. And that is when sled runs started being intentionally made from ice, increasing speeds and danger exponentially. I would say this is probably when sled runs went from a fun afternoon activity where you chuckle at your friends wiping out while you day drink on the sidelines to a much more serious competition. At the Cresta Run at St. Moritz and nearby resort towns across the Swiss Alps, these sled activities steadily evolved into luge, skeleton, and bobsled, leading to the first federation of sled sports in 1913. And when the first Winter Olympics was held in 1924, four-man bobsled was on the roster. Skeleton debuted at the next games, but luge wouldn't be added until 1964, in part due to a sort of back-and-forth in popularity between skeleton and luge. But especially as the sports have developed from their humble wooden sled beginnings at St. Moritz to the 90-mile-an-hour aerodynamic battle between light and ice tracks, how do people actually stay on course and, frankly, stay alive while hurtling down the course faster than most cars drive on the freeway? John Eric Goff, professor of physics at the University of Lynchburg, who focuses on the physics of sports, answered just that recently in a piece in The Conversation. Most of it is down to gravity. The mile-long courses drop about 400 feet as athletes speed down the course. But to get more specific, quoting Goff, "...riders in the sledding events reach their fast speeds because of the conversion of gravitational potential energy into kinetic energy." Gravitational potential energy represents stored energy and increases as an object is raised farther from Earth's surface. The potential energy is converted to another form of energy once the object starts falling. Kinetic energy is the energy of motion. The reason a flying baseball will shatter the glass if it hits a window is that the ball transfers its kinetic energy to the glass— both gravitational potential energy and kinetic energy increase as weight increases, meaning there is more energy in a four person bobsled team than there is in a one person luge or skeleton for a given speed. Racers are dealing with a lot of kinetic energy and strong forces. When athletes enter a turn at 80 miles an hour, they experience accelerations that can reach five times that of normal gravitational acceleration. End quote. Because they're all going down the same course, the key to winning, which is often a difference of .0-something seconds, lies in having a fast start, taking the shortest path down the course, and being as aerodynamic as possible. Goff explains, quote, While gravity pulls the athletes and their sleds downhill, they are constantly colliding with air particles that create a force called air drag, which pushes back on the athletes and sleds in a direction opposite to their velocity. The more aerodynamic an athlete or team is, the greater the speed. To minimize drag from the air, luge riders, who face up, lie as flat as possible. Downward-facing skeleton riders do the same. Whether in a team of two or four, bobsled riders stay tucked tightly inside the sled to reduce the area available for air to smash into. Any body positioning mistakes can make athletes less aerodynamic and lead to tiny increases in time that can cost them a medal. And these mistakes are tough to correct at the high accelerations and forces of a run. End quote. As far as hitting that shortest run down the track, that is done by keeping the sled as straight on course as possible, which also reduces drag. Athletes do this by steering. In the case of bobsled, the front rider has rings that turn the runners, the steel blades that the sled sits on. In luge, curved bows at the front of the sled can be affected by the athlete flexing their calves. They can also steer by moving their head and shoulders. Skeleton athletes have to rely on even fewer movements to direct their sled. It is all incredibly precise, with potentially dangerous consequences for getting it even slightly wrong, which is one reason why Christina Katarucci over at Slate recently declared Luge to be the slipperiest of all winter sports. Katarucci's premise lied in the fact that winter sports can basically all be boiled down to slipping around on frozen surfaces and trying not to fall, which is not wrong. That's basically what all those bored rich folks at the Swiss resorts and bored Scandinavian military men were doing when they invented the recreational and competitive forms of all of these now Olympic sports. Just having a bit of fun on some ice and snow and seeing how they could keep one-upping each other. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash and see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions, play with live dealers, and if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at fanduel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as is non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. In today's business world, any edge could be huge. And nobody offers more timely business advice than the Harvard Business Review. Whether it's their flagship magazine or digital content featuring articles, videos, podcasts, and more, you'll gain real-world insight into the most pressing topics facing business today. And now, for just $10 a month, you'll have unlimited access to Harvard Business Review content and subscriptions. Go to hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code BUSINESS. That's hbr.org subscriptions, promo code BUSINESS. So a new study published Monday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences says that corn-based ethanol is actually far worse for the climate than straight-up gasoline. This contradicts previous research commissioned by the US Department of Agriculture that indicated ethanol and other biofuels are more climate-friendly. But this new study, which was funded in part by the US Department of Energy as well as the National Wildlife Federation, found that ethanol is actually at least 24% more carbon-intensive compared to gasoline. and This is largely due to emissions from land conversion to grow the corn, though things like processing combustion, increased fertilizer, and water pollutants don't help. Quoting Reuters, Under the U.S. Renewable Fuel Standard, or RFS, a law enacted in 2005, the nation's oil refiners are required to mix some 15 billion gallons of corn-based ethanol into the nation's gasoline annually. The policy was intended to reduce emissions, support farmers, and cut U.S. dependence on energy imports. As a result of the mandate, corn cultivation grew 8.7% and expanded into 6.9 million additional acres of land between 2008 and 2016, the study found. That led to widespread changes in land use, including the tilling of cropland that would otherwise have been retired or enrolled in conservation programs and the planting of existing cropland with more corn, the study found. End quote. As clean energy expert David Roberts said on Twitter, quote, it doesn't get much attention anymore, but US corn ethanol remains a scam, a giant government welfare program for agribusiness with virtually no economic or environmental benefits. End quote. And from Civil Eats, quote, The RFS caused corn prices to spike by 30% and soybean and other crops by 20%. As a result, farmers planted corn everywhere they could, replacing other crops and pasture land and plowing up land that had previously been reserved for conservation purposes. They also often skipped the soybeans in their rotations, despite the potential impacts on their soil. Ethanol critics say this study suggests what some have long suspected, that the RFS is a tool to prop up corn prices. If this paper is discounted in RFS deliberations or we fail to acknowledge the net greenhouse gas effect of corn ethanol, we'll be admitting that this policy is all about income support for farmers, says Sylvia Sechi, a natural resource economist at the University of Iowa. In addition to its role as a force for change for corn belt farms, ethanol has also become a cornerstone of Midwest politics. With 42 ethanol plants, Iowa is the nation's biggest producer of both corn and ethanol. Political support for biofuels inevitably cites the industry's economic importance to the region and its role in keeping rural economies afloat. Some say the numbers behind that narrative are routinely overinflated, however. The latest renewable fuels industry estimates claim 46,000 jobs through the Iowa economy, but Iowa State University economist Dave Swenson says he can only find 7,200 jobs. By Swenson's calculation, counties with ethanol plants actually averaged larger population declines, grew merely 0.2% more as measured by wage and salary jobs, and had a higher rate of farm proprietor decline. Ethanol has not been any sort of game-changer for rural Iowa's overall economies or their demographics, says Swinson, And adds Jason Hill, a bioenergy researcher at the University of Minnesota, We currently use over one-third of the corn we produce for biofuel, and it offsets 6% of gas use. We could get the same benefit by increasing the fuel economy of cars from 22 to 24 miles per gallon. End quote. Reuters does point out that a 2019 study by the USDA found ethanol's carbon intensity was 39% lower than gasoline, but that study vastly underestimated the impact of land conversion, the key takeaway of this new study. The new study is one of the most comprehensive to date and uses the survey-based USDA National Resources Inventory, which Civil Eats points out was previously endorsed by the Renewable Fuels Association, the Ethanol Trade Lobby. Jeff Cooper, the president and CEO of the association, however, said this latest study was, quote, completely fictional and erroneous with worst case assumptions and cherry picked data, end quote. Folks on both sides of the camp are on edge at the moment as the RFS's ethanol requirements will expire this year, meaning the U.S. EPA will soon be announcing whether they are renewing or changing any of the requirements. As study author Tyler Lark put it, quote, decisions made this year have the potential to impact our climate and landscape for decades to come, end quote. Well, after months upon months of fan speculation, Netflix has finally announced that Stranger Things Season 4 will be dropping on May 27th and July 1st. Season 4 is being split into two volumes, the kind of thing Netflix has been playing with recently, like they released a three-volume movie series Fear Street last fall. Many of the episodes will be longer than individual episodes in previous seasons, overall making the total runtime of season 4 twice the length of any previous season. In a letter to fans, show creators the Duffer Brothers say that the two-volume plan is mostly to try to get the humongous show out as soon as possible possible. They also confirmed that the next season, season 5, will be the show's last, as they had always plotted it. So get ready for a lot of penultimate setting the stage for the finale vibes in this season 4 double feature. In other news, Record Store Day is once again returning to being on just one single day, April 23rd. It was spread out due to COVID the last two years, and the full lineup of releases we can expect to see on the day is now live. This year's global ambassador for Record Store Day is Taylor Swift, which I personally think recognizes a cool pivot in the vinyl listening audience. The stereotype of vinyl listeners might not be Taylor Swift fans, but she sold more than double the amount of vinyl records compared to any other artist in 2021. And according to Consequence of Sound, she even paid the salaries and healthcare of all of the employees at a local Nashville record store at the start of the pandemic. So, I'd say this honor is well-earned. For Record Store Day, Swift will be releasing a 7-inch of her song The Lakes from her album Folklore, and also joining on a charity compilation album called Portraits of Her, featuring 16 artists including Swift, Julian Baker, Laura Jane Grace, Princess Nokia, Girl Ultra, and more. Some other releases that I am particularly stoked about, or at least intrigued by, include... Two EPs from the late David Bowie, with some sort of previously officially unreleased tracks. Also, Patti Smith's double LP, with tracks handpicked by record store staff across the country. A double LP compilation from the Cranberries called Remembering Dolores, making its physical printing debut. A collection of b-sides and unreleased tracks from Superchunk, Nicki Minaj's first vinyl printing of her 2009 mixtape Beam Me Up Scotty, Tegan and Sarah's chaotic cover of their own 2004 album, but this time with each of them singing the other twins' songs. It's called Still Jealous, it actually came out digitally last Friday if you want to listen. Also, Vitamin String Quartet's cover of Coldplay's Viva La Vida, like, the entire album. And a remaster of Rick Astley's Whenever You Need Somebody LP, which, yes, kicks off with Never Gonna Give You Up. So, a lot of interesting stuff coming our way April 23rd, if you're into that sort of thing. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kottke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.